0: ways to be brave in this world, the earth is crying, we're flooding, todo y reacción, sometimes bravery involves laying down your life for something bigger than yourself or for someone else. Sometimes it involves giving up everything you have ever known or everyone you've ever loved for the sake of something greater. Ooh, da-da-da. Ooh, da-da-da. And now we cannot be a of the, of the, time. the slow walk towards a better life. That is a sort of bravery. must have now entierra tu arrogancia nothing is worth more than your alma the earth is screaming escucha el volcán Todo es consecuencia y reacción Sube la fiebre, son olas de calor Se levanta el mar Se hunde el piso Venita la tierra y se caen los edificios Neoliberalino, you wanna hustle and keep making for yourself. It's time to share, it's time to give back. Nothing is worth more than your alma. la que vuelves a caer soy todo lo que te enseñaron que tenías que tener el agua que no habías de beber se deja ver, pero tú sientes su mirada Fija en ti cada vez que caminas sola A todas horas preguntando de las putas, si Fue bueno tomarte esas piscolas o arrastrar esa pistola Pero tú sientes su mirada Fija en ti cada vez que caminas sola A todas horas preguntando de las cultas si Fue bueno tomarte esas piscolas o arrastrar esa pistola Empoderarte de una vez y defenderte sola
1: City Limits, limits.
2: brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am.
3: City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment,
2: to transport and planning and housing issues.
3: To privatisations and our utility services.
2: To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band. If we can hear
0: it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City limits. limits.
3: Okay, I think the Lakers of Tyrants have been I mean, a very pleasant morning, a bit cold, but a pleasant morning overall to ride across here from Brunswick, I think. Did you ride in, Karina? Karina's- Why, yes, I did. Yes, I'm Kevin Healy. That's Karina over there. Karina Aquilera. Who, you have a different name, don't you? You put something before Aquilera. I okay. the Aguilera. Ah, right, Yes.
4: Pressing the and buttons, you pronounce it differently to me too. Pardon? <laughs>
3: you also pronounce it differently to me. <laughs> uh, have you got something in your hand? A cup of tea or something? A of-
4: oh, a cup of coffee. But I wouldn't mind
3: um, <coughs> oh, good. Gosh, being double
4: parked this oh, morning.
3: There we go. I just pour some tea. It's a um, fourth Wednesday of the month, and today we're going to be. Well, the first interview is about a promo that's been on 3CR for the last few weeks. Tell, mm. us, tell us about that, Karina. You've teed it up.
4: Um, so we've teed up an interview with Ivan from the Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party, which is a volunteer on ORG, um, trying, to, trying to eradicate this weed of significance. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that in Victoria. Um, and then later on, Zeb has come in for a nice cameo interview she did a pre-record uh with someone called Willow about dumpster diving so yes, I'm which very interested. very huh?
3: appropriate I think given the when they the given the government keeps telling us when they know we're doing it tough uh but, you know, they've done all they can because they've got to think of the economy first, of course. But uh, if we're doing it tough, of course, people are forced to go out and scrounge for food. That's that's the go.
4: Of course. And, and you and know, also in the, the news, mm. Woolies, yeah. Woolies yeah. is putting in little like camera with AI technology against people, yeah. shoplifting yeah. and… I mean you know they 've got to take the measures that they can you know of course they do money 's tight, so you 've got to spend it on exactly on cracking down on survival on. crimes right
3: that 's right, exactly, and of course it also i 'm sure the interview will expose it. it also shows the way that a lot of food is so wasted oh yeah, um, and um, they 'll talk about that, so that 's okay, that's the today 's program. the tussock weed one is interesting because most weeks on this program, the subjects we 're talking about i I read up on, and I tend to know a, at least something about the subject matter. This one I know absolutely nothing. So you're not supposed <laughs> to say that out loud. Though. <laughs> <I know? laughs> no. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but uh, it does sound like a well. I think it. I think it's related to a lot of things: the destruction of um, of grasslands <laughs> and the, and the destruction of the environment and all that. So it's it's probably it does relate to a lot of things we talk about.
4: I think it's a big one for the agriculture industry as well. But I'm not sure. I guess we'll find out this morning.
3: That's what we're going to find out, and um, <laughs> we, we presume our, our, our interviewee knows what knows about the subject. <laughs> we certainly hope he does, because we don't. <laughs> so we'll find out. Um, I thought one of the one of the more uh, more interesting calls at the weekend. Susan Lee, the the deputy, the federal opposition leader. Um, came out um, at the weekend and, and called for all, all sports stars, all sports stars to boycott Labour MPs um, over the cancellation of the Commonwealth Games and not to talk to them again until the Commonwealth Games are reinstated. So that's a pretty pretty frightening possibility, isn't it? Not a lot listening to those sporting stars telling us uh, how, you know, the team did a great job. It was, you know, it was a team effort and uh, we thought we were in trouble, but you know, the boys really <laughs> pulled it out. The boys really pulled it out at the end there. I, no, I thought, uh, you know, no, we played well in the end and, uh, and we're looking for We're taking it a week at a time at the moment, of course, but uh, you know, so that sort of thing, yes. Yeah, so. At least they're not in charge of who That's gets right. dessert and what, time's,
4: what time bedtime is, you know.
3: That's right, we, we're going to miss that. <laughs> <laughs> but on a positive note, it's or a semi-positive note because I'm not sure. It's, I think it's ambivalent. But the story we had last week about the um, techno park drive in uh, Hobsons Bay, where people were being thrown out, oh. and the council's now told them they can stay there. Um, it's reacted, but it's it's not quite that. It, it it's it's just a bit hard to know. Um, the the because the chief executive of the council said they had accepted community feedback and there would be no further enforcement steps until residents could outline their specific situation. Well, I don't know what that means, specifically until. And they've sent a letter to these residents and it highlights that whoever needs more time will be granted an extension, but also that council needs to uh, hear from residents and residents can contact them, etc. cetera. Um, so that all sounds like they have just put it off for the timing rather than... Um, the the, the imp- implication in the story was ca- the headline is Council Backs Off Evictions, but I think it's backing off temporarily by the sound of that. But mm. anyway, there's more to follow on that, I would think. But, yeah. Yeah,
4: and good job following up, up on it this week mm. as well, being an analogue mm. man that you are.
3: <laughs> there you are. But I thought also on a related matter, there was on, on Monday's Financial Review, really interesting, I thought, juxtapositioning, because page one, the headline was... Well, there's a little kicker headline. Owners say reckless, reckless in parentheses. Andrews will deepen crisis. Investor fury over Vic rent freeze plan. Because at the weekend, I think, you know, Andrews announced he was considering making it, you couldn't pay mm-hmm. rents until every two years. Yep. Investor fury over Vic rent freeze plan. So the poor old investors and, and landlords are so upset. But directly behind it, in fact, directly behind it on page two. The headline, rent pain takes gloss off slowing CPI and rent (laughs) rent pain for for tenants. So on one side, you've got the poor landlord screaming and yelling. And the other side, they can't put the rent up. And on the other side, tenants saying, we can't pay the rent already. <laughs> <coughs> As one of the most
4: expensive newspapers, though, the Financial Review, that that second page, that second page intel is behind the paywall, right?
3: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the, oh, the landlord's got peak one that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> but I thought that was interesting. Um, also, the, um, <coughs> the, the CFMEU has come out and joined the Greens, I think, not quite the same proposal, but pretty close to it. They've called for a a, a super profits tax uh, on companies making trillions um, to fund housing, and they want a they want a tax on it which would provide lots and lots of housing. They talk about the fact that we're so far behind in what we need in housing. <laughs> the trouble is they don't quite specify. I think that well, I mean it suits them because they get to build them, of course. So that that's. That union um, but it, but nonetheless they're saying let 's have a tax on super profits and build the housing we need, but they don't specify that it should be they do mention social housing in one one context, but they don't necessarily say it should be public housing they They talk about just housing, but nonetheless it's a it's a move to hit the poor rich the mm. <coughs> poor rich um, <laughs> yes <laughs> that's right. Uh, and uh oh look i want, I want to go to something because i want to spend a bit of time on this and we've only got a couple of minutes really but um <clears throat> the the there's a group in the u s Congress calling for Australia to abandon its its it abandon its 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 opposition to nuclear energy uh saying that you know it's ridiculous because we've got to we're going to encourage australia. Um, while we are there, this is a bloke called Congressman Neil Dunn. He's coming here next month. You'll be pleased to hear. And he's going to tell us, do we need nuclear energy? Uh, we talk about why isn't Australia with us on this, with us on this, Notice, note that. Uh, there are a lot of commercial opportunities. You've got the uranium ore. You've got the skills. All you need is the will. Once you get it up and running, it's the cheapest, most reliable, cleanest energy. There is nothing greener. Than nuclear energy, he says, and America's going going mad on nuclear energy. At Maybe the
4: fluorescent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway,
3: mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. so that, that's great. And then um, the AI group, our old mate Innes Willocks, who was from the industry profits group, industry group, Australian industry group, who's one of my favourites on the week that was us. Uh, he's also called for Australia to uh, go nuclear, and uh, it's all happening. And related to that, 're with the thirty eight million a day we keep talking about we 're spending on nuclear submarines also we 've just announced we 're going to spend another another ten billion dollars ten billion to buy twenty new hercules aircraft from the united states and um, of course, in the last week we 've had all these neighbor, these exercises around Australia with all these uh, these trained killers all over the place uh, building up our uh, our defence and uh, and Richard Miles, our minister, saying how wonderful it is. Meanwhile, um, the ALP itself has there's been more and more motions coming out of the ALP condemning the AUKUS deal and saying we should not pursue it. We should spend the money on on decent things. And in fact, um, a motion in um, a motion in the in, in one of the Labor conferences last weekend. The Sydney Federal Electorate Council, in fact, said the ALP should prioritise spending commitments that contribute to the social good of our society rather than wasting hundreds of billions of dollars in a dangerous and unnecessary weapons program. The values of the ALP and the trade union movement dictate that the focus of public funds should be on public education, public health, aged care, housing, social security, the manufacturing industry and the transition to a renewable energy economy. But then Richard Miles, the the trained killer minister, came out and said, Australia's defence cooperation with the United States is unprecedented in scale, scope and significance. Well, we know that. He didn't need to tell us. We'll continue to work with our partners, including the United States, and on he goes. And then Penny Wong also piped up and said she agreed with all that, and it's all wonderful. Um, and I raised this because a few weeks ago I mentioned it was going to go to the ALP Federal Conference, which is coming up in a month or two. Mm. Um, and um, there's been a deal done, that it won't embarrass Urban Easy, but as it pointed out in, a paper, in the paper last week, the left, for the first time in years, has the numbers at the Federal Conference, but it's the old story. They so get the numbers. So what do you do with them? They're using the numbers to do a factional deal to make sure that the AUKUS deal is not knocked on the head and it goes ahead. So they act they they in principle oppose it, but they'll they'll support it to support Albanese and not embarrass the government. So what's the use of the so called left having any sort of power control at all? It's just a complete waste of time. I'm going
4: cross eyed over here. It's a bit it's a bit yeah Yeah. What's the point of anything,
3: really? well, don't, don't be that, don't be that <laughs> desperate. <laughs> there must be a point to something, <laughs> like uh, fighting grasslands or something. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and the other one, I'll mention this briefly. You might spend more time on this next week. But just this week, um, they've appointed a new productivity commissioner, a bloke called uh, Chris Barrett, who worked with Wayne Swan when Wayne Swan was Treasurer, Labor Treasurer, of course. Um, who was a capitalist treasurer anyway when labor uh, and this bloke since then 's been all sorts of um, in all sorts of positions in the capitalist economy, but the financial review in particular is kicking up a stink about it page after page about the fact that you know it 's terrible to put a a labor person in someone who's worked for labor. Um, because uh, this, this could lead to bias. And in fact, their very right-wing commentator, Philip Curry says, Chris Barrett comes to the job with fine credentials and glowing endorsements, but his objectivity will be, will be the subject of scrutiny because he did work for a Labour minister years ago. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> um, and they had an editorial, Productivity Post for Labour Insider. The editorial says, it's you know, this is really dangerous stuff. Uh, but it points out, That the bloke bloke is replacing uh, Michael Brennan, who was appointed by the Liberal government, of course. He worked for Liberal politicians Nick Minchin and former Victorian Treasurer Alan Stockdale. But as the son of the internationally renowned public choice professor Jeff Brennan, Mr. Brennan, uh, who kept a copy of Joseph Trumpeter's The Theory of Economic Development, uh, has by and large maintained the pro market approach of the Productivity Commission and its predecessors, etc., etc. Uh, so the pro-market approach is important, and they're hoping this bloke, this bloke, might not have a pro-market approach. And they, they talk about the fact that the unions of the left call it neo, as they call it, pejoratively call this neoliberalism. Well, it is neo. We could call it what if they don't like neoliberalism? Let's call it. New right economics, let's call it extreme right economics, let's call it exploit workers economics, let's call it smash unions, smash the people, keep people down, make people poor economics. I don't care what they or call it. Or to use it. their words, yeah,
4: objective economics.
3: Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, so they're up in arms because a bloke who is going to be a true capitalist economist nonetheless did work for Wayne Swan, so he's questionable in terms of being in the Productivity Commission, isn't it? Mm, 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 can't have that. Let's, have a, let's go to our guest.
4: Alrighty. <laughs> You're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio.
3: <laughs>
1: People are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay with spending money on the supports that we
5: need. There's more than four hundred thousand people who should be on the DSP, but are on Job Seeker
3: instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitments. Like everybody the only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour.
5: If everyone was the same, it would be a born old world we live in.
0: We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person.
2: 3CR Stay tuned, stay
5: radical.
4: That's right, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. On the line we have Ivan Carter from the Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party. Thanks for joining us, Ivan.
5: No worries, good morning.
4: Hope it's not too early for you. Uh, you're here with Kevin and myself in the studio. Um, before we get started on what Serrated tussock is, I guess I thought I would ask a little bit about the organisation and how you got involved with it, because, um, yeah, it seems like it's been going for quite a while.
5: It has, yes. So we started back in the mid-90s. Um, it was sort of came about just through some concerned farmers and uh, landowners and uh, conservation people that um, yeah, were noticing that there was an invasive grass uh, called tussock that was spreading across the landscape uh, and the big issue with it is that it wasn't uh, edible to stock or to animals so uh, it was starting to take over, particularly the really important grasslands around the north and west of Melbourne, which is sort of critically endangered. So yeah, they started the Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party, which is a bit of a mouthful <laughs> to say. And it isn't much of a party, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, it's just a group of uh, volunteers and uh, landowners that apply for grants and uh, get a little bit of funding from the government to try and um, increase awareness and, education uh, about the impacts of this invasive grass.
4: Yes, I noticed on your website you've got several kind of leaflets and identification sort of guides and things like that. Um, So I was just kind of wondering, like, I guess to give a bit of background, like what, um, like where did it come from and what makes it so voracious? Like uh, what... What classifies it as a weed of such significance?
5: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it is.
3: Ooh. he disappeared on us. That hello. hello.
4: That sounds like a cutout.
3: Yeah.
4: Let's get him back. Focus on Myanmar art, music, and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday, the 26th of July, for a presentation about art, music, and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mal Kamwa, and a presentation in Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitix. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar. Art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Pass the Media, a 3CR supporter.
0: 3CR Community Radio. Giving the voice to
2: the community since 1976.
3: Okay, Ivan, the, the last thing we heard was um, that's a good question, so <laughs> could you just follow up on it, thanks? I'm sorry, we lost you completely. Something yeah, we sure. did. Uh,
5: um, yeah, so I was explaining mm-hmm. that serrated is native to South America, so uh, Argentina and Chile sort of area. Uh, it grows up in the highlands where it um, it's actually quite drought-tolerant, uh, so it survives on not much rainfall, but it's a bit cooler up in uh, the highlands. So unfortunately, uh, what happened was it was brought over to Australia as a landscaping plant, uh, and it was going to help control a bit of erosion. Uh, and what has happened is it has spread fairly rapidly because it is good at surviving uh, drier areas and low rainfall, but enjoys the warmer summers we have here. So what happened was it was sort of introduced around uh, Bacchus Marsh sort of area, where it's, there's a lot of dry sort of escarpments, and then it spread, unfortunately, to over 250,000 hectares now across Victoria. Uh, and the issue we're seeing, particularly sort of in the areas where your listeners would be, is that it's um, yeah taken over some of the uh, grasslands around the fringes of uh, Melbourne and Geelong. And, um, yeah, the issue there is it displaces the uh, native grasses that uh, are critically endangered and, unfortunately, the wildlife and the insects that live in there are displaced as well.
3: Yeah, that's that's interesting because you know things together. You know, certainly, the the ecology of those grasslands is quite fragile, and you've got things like the growling grass frog and all those those endangered yeah. species. In some ways, are, are they generally under threat with all this?
5: Exactly. Yeah. So what's happened is, as you would have seen, uh, your houses have just flattened a lot of the grasslands, mm. unfortunately, around yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, Melbourne. So the government was, you know doing this uh, scheme where they were sort of offsetting, you know, grasslands and trying to set some aside while the other ones are being flattened. Unfortunately, now we're left with such a small amount and the ones that are there are full of invasive grasses unless, um, yeah, unless they get sort of, you know, managed on a a kind of fairly regular basis, which, you know, some of them do and some of them don't. So you end up with, yeah, serrated tussock as well as uh, chili and, and needle grass and yeah, a, a variety of artichoke uh, thistles and so on. So yes, it is a big issue for farmers as well. Further out, you know, from Melbourne, uh, you get a serrated tussock sort of invading pastures, and then um, the livestock will eat around the serrated tussock and eat all the good grass first, and then the serrated tussock will just spread into mm. those spaces.
3: Uh, uh, Marvin Australia has a long environmental history of the. The the bark being worse than the cure being worse than the bark, hasn't it? I mean, we 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 bring all these things into cure something, and they become the problem.
5: Oh look, absolutely! It's yeah, it's it's a case of um, yeah, just making another problem uh, bigger than the, the original problem that was, and you know, foxes and uh, rabbits and uh, cane toads, Can't, yeah, yes. you name it, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we've done it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. How do you get rid of it? By the way, I mean it's very good to say we know it's there and it's a problem, but how do you how do you deal with it?
5: Yeah. Well, well, the good news about getting rid of it is it is fairly easy to control. The difficulty is identifying it. Um, As you probably would have seen on the website or the photos, it looks like a lot of our native grasses. So it's just a tufted um, perennial grass that grows about two feet tall. Uh, and it looks a lot like the native uh, tussocks you can see along uh, Mary Creek and, you know, all the sort of areas of, of like revegetation around Melbourne. The good news is getting rid of it is quite easy. It's got a shallow uh, root structure, so you can chip it out with a mattock or you can pull it out if the ground's soft. But each plant, believe it or not, and this is where it gets going, it has about 20,000 seeds Per plant, and um, they spread in the wind. So in late spring, they'll be in seed and flower, and then they'll blow off and they'll tumble round. And you might have even seen them around the fringes of Melbourne because they tumble around like tumbleweed or uh, fairy grass. And they blow around and they get stuck in fences and uh, mm-hmm. sort of up against uh, vegetation, and then they drop the seeds and off they go to the next site to invade. So, yeah, once it gets dense, like the photos on our website, uh, your options are usually herbicides, uh, spraying them, or you can do burns, um, or you can plough a paddock over, you know, if you're sort of, yeah, doing that kind of uh, pasture or, or grazing sort of stuff.
4: Now, Ivan, um, so a couple of weeks ago we had Helen Vandenberg on the show talking about uh, Victoria's waterways and the key like, governmental players and policies kind of surrounding that. Um, when it comes to pest species, um, yes. what is the role actually of the government and what does that look like on the ground? I mean, presumably if it were effective, um, you guys as an organisation wouldn't have formed.
5: That's it. Yep, spot on question. It's one of those unusual situations where there is reasonably strong legislation set up for dealing with invasive species, but it's just not resourced and funded to the point where uh, there's enough compliance. So basically the way it's set up in Victoria is they have uh, a piece of legislation called the Catchment and Land Protection Act, and that might have been mentioned by Helen as well, because it's a very broad act that sort of covers waterways and catchments and invasive species. And what it does, it lists, it's got a big list of all the invasive plants and animals that are, are a perceived threat or are a threat or are causing you know, high impacts on either the environment or farming. And then under that legislation, it lists. Um, yeah, what sort of category they fall into. So there's high-risk species and then there's, at the other end of the scale, there's sort of established ones that are sort of already established everywhere and they've sort of spread about as far as they could. So depending on where the the species falls in that scale is as to what sort of action the landowner or the land manager is supposed to take on their land. Uh, So so Seredotusik falls mostly under a regionally controlled weed, similar to gauze or to blackberry or to rabbits, for example. So the idea there is is legislation sort of says that it's up to the landowner to prevent the growth and the spread. So it's, they don't have to get rid of it altogether <clears throat> in most cases, uh, but they do need to stop it from spreading elsewhere and contain it. The reality on the ground is there used to be you know, hundreds of compliance officers across the state that used to go out and actually do inspections for this sort of stuff, and they target different areas each year. But they've been sort of whittled down over the years, uh, unfortunately, since the 90s, uh, and there's now not that many. So they really just pick a few priority species in a few spots, uh, and Serena tussock is still one of those. But, um, yeah, as you could imagine, like a lot of uh, government programs uh, funding is scarce and, um, yeah, it's quite hard to ensure all those species are controlled across the state in every property.
3: we have going to go to our next interview, but just concluding, what can people do anything to help you out? What? Well,
5: yeah, look, what we're asking for is just for people to jump online and have a look at our website, which is uh, com. Uh, there's a great video on there that shows you how to identify it. Uh, It talks a bit about how to remove it if you've only got a few plants. And it talks about some of the species that you might want to replace it with as well. So if you're going to pull something out of the landscape, it would be good to put something back in, either a native plant or, you know, something that's beneficial for for, uh, farming. So, yeah, if you just jump online and have a look, you can get in touch with us uh, through the website if you've got any more questions.
4: Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
3: No worries. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Ivan. Good luck with it. Okay, we're going to go to our next inter- interview shortly. Um, well, you can introduce the next one. Uh, we're going to play a tribute to Tony Bennett, but we'll do that next week now because we haven't got time. But um, Oh, all right then. Yeah.
4: Um, this is Zeb. I'm pretty sure she introduces herself, so I hope listeners find it enjoyable and informative. Yeah.
2: <laughs> You're listening to City Limits on 3CR. Uh, this is Zeb speaking from the magic land of Zoom. Um and I have a special guest with me today. It's Willow. Um, I'm recording uh, from Wurundjeri Land. Are you also on Wurundjeri Land, Willow?
1: I'm also on Wurundjeri Land up near the Darabin Creek. Yes.
2: Yes, me too. So before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge that um, and acknowledge that we're, that we're doing this interview on unceded land um, and pay respect to elders, past, present and emerging, and um, And, yeah, Willow, do you want to introduce yourself and what your interests are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Willow. I'm a researcher and a writer. um, And I guess I'm a geographer. So I study food waste and urban wildlife. And at the moment, I'm in the middle of a thesis, kind of combining those two elements into one in a very messy and very enjoyable way.
2: Yeah, can you tell me more about what that what the topic of your thesis is?
1: Definitely. Uh so I've been interested in dumpster diving for a long time, which is probably something a lot of people listening to your show have heard of before. But um it's something I found out about a few years ago, actually when we used to live together. Um I got my first taste of it when I kind of had just moved over to the city and realized the kind of bounty that's available in the dumpsters and the bins and the parking lots of supermarkets around this city and around a lot of cities on this continent. Um, And that was the practice of dumpster diving, kind of rocking up at a supermarket, going around the back to the dumpster and pulling food out of the back and realizing how much food gets thrown away for these really kind of profit-based reasons that seem really silly and only seem to make sense in the worlds of profit and supermarket merchandising and kind of ridiculous supply chains. So with the logic of that supply chain and capital, there's a lot of food left over. And um, I was pretty interested and enchanted in how people were surviving off of this food and finding a way to feed their communities often and feeding other people that they know or even don't know. So that's been something that fascinated me for a long time. And when I came around to wanting to do some more research about it, I'd also, been very drawn to these other presences in the city that um, also make a living off of the food that we throw away. And those aren't always humans. So I've been very interested in the famous bin chickens alongside all the other mammals and the, yeah, the complete menagerie of mammals and rodents and bugs and um, molds and fungi that make a living off of our waste. So that's what my research looks at
2: yay that's so cool and yeah like for a bit of background we used to live in a share house together it was a pretty big share house and we used to <laughs> um occasionally go out and dumpster dive and um we used to call that bin chickening so it's very linked in my mind
1: <laughs> we did we did yeah shout out to our old housemate I think it was Joss who was Joss was like this is bin chickening um we are all bin chickens and um Yeah, that house I remember was very wildlife friendly. I think we had bees living in the wall for a while.
2: Yes, we did. Yep, there was a mystery of why dead bees kept on turning up in my room (laughs) and why the room of the person next door to me smelt like honey. Uh, And it took us a little while to figure out that that was because there was a beehive in the walls. Um, But, yeah, that that was a fascinating and kind of magical house. It was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was interesting times. Um, so, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit more about, like, the weird metabolism of the supermarkets and supply chains and um, what supermarkets' reaction to dumpster diving is?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I feel like there's these two different worlds, that involve the supermarket. There's probably more than two, but there's especially these two very different places, which is you walk into the front doors of a Woolworths or a Coles, somewhere in the suburbs or in the inner city of Melbourne, and it's all shining surfaces and bright lights and all the food is packaged so nicely. Everything looks absolutely perfect. And you kind of, it's this world of the perfect commodity where everything is the same price that's on the label, it's on the tags and every piece of fruit looks the same. Everything's faultless. And then there's this other side, which if you're able to go through the back of the store, you know, past where the workers break room is, past where the casual waste bins are for workers' lunch and all the different kind of messy ends of the supply chain. And you get out to the back of the store, there's these often really grimy, really tucked away parking lots um, where you've got these dumpsters that are just full to the brim with food. And often in these really kind of like grim situations where you've got, yeah, some really horrible smells from dumpsters that haven't been cleaned for years. You've got the kind of like always present bin grime, and then you've got all this food that's actually mostly in really good condition, but being tipped into these often really unsanitary or at least very unappealing places. But um, usually this food has just made it through that kind of sparkling white fluorescent part of the store. And not being allowed to stay in there because it's got a tiny fault or someone's dropped it and dented it. Or sometimes it doesn't even seem to be a reason for it. I've pulled plenty of food out where I'm like, I don't know why this is in the bin. It's it's in date. It looks fine. It's packaged. But it ends up there. And it's a decent amount of food, I would say, in most of those places.
2: Yeah. And there's this weird tension where there's nothing illegal about taking something that is waste that has been thrown into a bin. So there's there's nothing like, at least in Victoria, it's not illegal to dumpster dive. Um, however, obviously supermarket owners don't want people getting food for free because their business is making money from selling food. Um, mm-hmm. So they will attempt to discourage people as much as possible from taking that food um yeah do you have anything more like do you have stuff to say about that
1: oh I think you're so right Zeb. I think both of us have experienced this right the anxiety and the hostility of the supermarket owner especially the managers who kind of are working in the direct place of the owner I think doing interviews with participants this year everything that participants has told me is especially this anxiety around getting caught at the dumpster And dealing with the consequences of that, whether that's like angry workers or even just like over friendly workers who are a bit scary or, you know, even having the cops called and being threatened by store owners or police. Um, There's a real anxiety, Like there's a real attempt to police what happens to that waste once it ends up in the dumpster. And um, yeah, it's often really scary. Mm
2: Yeah. What do you think about... um... I suppose there's different ways to interact with the capitalist system that we have now. And
0: mm.
2: one of them is to kind of go in the front door and be like, um, what is a way that you can change your food waste policies or um, perhaps like uh, is there a charity that you can donate your like wasted food to? Um there's, yeah, there's a kind of more like political side of we need to do system change um, to make these things not happen. And then there's also this more like um, organic sort of dumpster diving practice that that springs up from what the system has created. And what do you think about these different ways of interacting?
1: Yeah, I think. That's such a good summary of the two approaches. Um, And it's definitely an ecology of approaches. Like I think it's not to say one's always going to be better than the other in any situation. I think there's definitely a place for working with these huge massive corporations and trying to reduce some of the damage they're doing. But then you do see with these kind of like food um, kind of like recycling kind of initiatives, places like the Ugly Bunch and stuff like that, where you see supermarkets either trying to make money off of like this misshapen fruit and veg Or they're using this kind of like, we donate X amount of food to food charities as a kind of halo effect to make their business seem more moral and more ethical and make you feel like you're really doing the right thing by shopping at Woolworths. Meanwhile, they'll still exploit their workers, push farmers into poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So what I like about the dumpster diving approach, it's very rough and ready. It's like, we're going to make a you're going to make something out of what's here right now. We're going to make a gift out of what is present to us. And that is the fact that we can get all this free food out of the bin and redistribute it or use it to survive when we're out of work. Um, and and it's it's always very political. It's always because it gets right into those questions of what's capitalism throwing away and who is it throwing away and how do we get the food to those people?
2: Hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about the side of like non-human um animals and their interaction with the city's waste and I guess like urban environments
1: yeah yeah so this might seem almost like in another whole world to what we've just talked about but I think it's actually really closely related to those ideas of like care and mutual aid that often come up in the human dumpster diving networks You get a lot of people who are getting food for friends or family or for cooking initiatives and like anarchist kitchens like food not bombs um and then you've also got this like creepy crawly crittery element that are existing kind of along the sidelines and in the margins as well sometimes it's like you know you go to the local park and you see ibises and chickens kind of like pulling food out of the bins and using that to survive um, and other times it's it's more like human related, like a lot of people I know who dumpster dive actually use that as a way to feed their dog or their cat, um, because you can also dumpster dive pet food and meat in a bin that's risky for a human might be actually less risky for some non-humans. So there's a bit of like a hair food chain going on there that I really like. But then there's also this element that's a bit more unruly, which is... You've got these wild animals and critters in the city that have like moved from their under traditional ecologies, whether that's you know inland floodplains or you know the place where the where the city actually stood, but that has been changed so much by the city. And they're kind of a reminder of the fact that these non humans are still here, and they're actually adapting and and living in in our waste in a really incredible and ingenious way, um, and showing that like you know, it doesn't mean, it doesn't take, you know, perfect replication of a anything's habitat to survive. Like creatures do kind of persist and we've got this like thick anthropocene around us, but all these critters are making do for what's around them.
2: Yeah, I really like that idea. And um, I like how you were talking about kind of thinking about the ways of interacting with the supermarket as like an ecology before because
0: Mm.
2: obviously humans like to make dichotomies between things and we have this idea of like there's nature and then there's the city and there's like humans and then other animals and so it's really interesting to hear a more cohesive look at like obviously being in the city is actually still being in nature. It's just nature that we have heavily influenced.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's a nature we're still, like, really related to, I think. Something I've really enjoyed learning with participants as I've been doing interviews this year is, like, a lot of dumpster divers use the signals from nonhumans to work out if food is good. So, you know, if if there's, yeah, if there's a whole flock of birds or seagulls around your bin might not be a great place. It might mean that all the food's kind of been spilled and it's easy to get to and it's kind of exposed to the elements. Or if there's mold on something, that's, you know, that's another living thing that's kind of telling you this is no good to eat. Something else has already got to it. Um and then on the other hand, yeah, you can kind of have other animals that might be pets that can actually eat food and make more food available from the bin.
2: Yeah. Um are there any other kind of findings that you've already been discovering during your research?
1: Hmm. I've noticed that a lot of dumpster divers have a real soft spot for alley cats and feeding cats. So there's, I think there's, um, there's something about dumpster diving that means people are very respectful or at least really full of care for whatever they run into while they're out there. So if that's a possum or a cat or a pigeon that's got stuck in a bin, which I've heard about a couple of times, then dumpster divers really do make an effort to kind of respect that creature's territory and also help them out if they're in trouble.
2: Mm, yeah okay so um if listeners are interested in learning more about dumpster diving or also learning more about your research uh where should they go
1: that is a great question i think for listeners interested in dumpster diving you definitely don't have to take it from me i would be joining up with a crew like food not bombs nam who do great work multiple nights a week Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, they're out and you can find on their socials, which is Instagram and Facebook and all that, where they're going to be. But I think if you're interested in dumpster diving for the first time, that's a really good place to start. Also ask your friends or there might even be a neighborhood crew. There's also a great Facebook group called the Melbourne Freegan Co-op, and they've got kind of a guide to dumpster diving built into that group. Um, Another thing that people keep an eye out for is something that um, I've created with my participants and we've all kind of got together to create is a zine guide to dumpster diving, which is going to be out in a couple of months. And if you're looking for a copy, head to Catalyst Social Center in Coburg on Sydney Road and you can grab a copy. And that's kind of like a 101 how to dumpster dive and what to expect.
2: Oh, that's great. Yeah, we can put details to some of those um, organizations in the show notes so that people can can chase it up afterwards. Um Exactly. Anything else that we've missed? Anything else that we desperately need to talk about?
1: <laughs> There's always <laughs> so much to talk about, isn't there? Um you know, I think something that I really love to point out when I talk about this kind of stuff, especially that colliding worlds of of humans and non-humans around food waste is, you know, food waste is still a very new Thing, I think it's, you know, to have the amount of food that we do available and the amount that's being thrown away is something that's come about with capitalism in the last couple hundred years. And especially things like plastics and plastic waste is something that's very new. And there are great researchers like Max Liboiron over in Turtle Island who are really looking into the effects of plastics in a very more than human. How does this impact kind of human and non-human worlds kind of way? Um, but something I like to kind of share as a bit of an anecdote is there's been some recent scientific studies looking at how those waste habitats have changed different animals. And what some scientists from the University, uh, Macquarie University in Sydney, have found is that actually there's now a, such a significant genetic variation in ibis populations on the East Coast. That the inland ibis and the urban ibis that we see snatching food out of bins and at picnics could actually be considered almost diverging genetic timelines now. And that um, not only is this really interesting to say these creatures have adapted to like a completely different way of living and socially learning about waste, but they also could help to replenish inland habitats when that habitat is restored, when and if we actually restore those inland rivers and plains that the Ibis come from. So um, there's a real potential there. Like I think it's really important to say waste can be awful and it is definitely a symptom of a lot of the problems with our system but it's not a dead end and it can be really like generative as well.
2: Yeah oh that's good. It's good to hear something hopeful because on City Limits we often are talking about The depressing stuff. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's good to always see that there's like a positive side to things as well. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, And yeah, maybe hope to have you on again. And thanks to everyone for listening.
1: Thanks, Seb. It's been a pleasure.
0: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Editing Zeb
2: here. The legality of dumpster diving is actually a grey area. While there isn't a law that expressly forbids dumpster diving, depending on the circumstances, dumpster divers could face theft, trespassing or vandalism charges. It is important to remember that dumpster diving should never be an antagonistic or destructive activity. Dumpster divers should always be mindful and respectful of others who need food and respectful of workers too. Acting dangerously or aggressively, or creating mess or disruption, could not only get the individual dumpster diver into trouble, but it could also have negative consequences for other people's access to food. Good dumpster diving etiquette would include being polite and kind to others, sharing food and not taking everything for oneself, and leaving a place better than it was before. Before we go back to Kevin... I've got a little song to play here. It's by our housemate that um, Willow mentioned during the interview, Jocelyn Winter. Um, And she is not only a talented bin chicken, but a very talented musician. And this is an instrumental piece called Here Is My Heart.
4: Now, for listeners wanting to find out more about Food Not Bombs, Food Not Bombs is an all-volunteer-run movement that rescues food from multiple sources, not specifically just dumpster diving, um, that would otherwise be discarded and shares free vegan and vegetarian meals with the hungry. Uh, For contact, you can head to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Also check out the Catalyst Really, Really Free Market Nam on Facebook, and this info will all be in our show notes. Uh, now, Kevin wanted to play.
3: Well, I think we we'll would do it next week, but we we'll probably just have time now to squeeze in a little bit anyway of uh, Tony Bennett tribute. Most people, most stations have been playing his well-known hits. This is a, an album of his with K.D. Lang. Uh, called 12 Timeless Louis Armstrong Classics, A Wonderful World. So let's play A Wonderful World and uh, go out with that today. Katie Lang and Tony Bennett.
4: Catch you next week on City Limits on 3CR. I see trees of green Red roses too
5: bright blessed day and the dark sacred night and I think to myself what a wonderful world
0: the colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky
5: do you think Satchmo was right? What a wonderful